Welcome to this week's episode of the Life Profitability Podcast. I'm your host, Adi Pinar. Every week on this podcast, I have a conversation with a fascinating guest, whether they're an entrepreneur, artist, musician, author, poet, or artisan, to learn more about how they live a life that is uniquely profitable. My guest today is industrial designer, Andre Dukic, who has been working on making a functional prosthetic hand for amputees for the last four years. What is incredible is that his product can be cheaply produced with 3D printed parts for about $30, whereas robotic alternatives would cost more than $100,000. In our conversation, Andre and I spoke about the genesis for the project and how he had found himself in a comfortable life that lacked meaning. It wasn't until an accident of his own that still affects his physical ability today that he decided to pursue his project, Make Rand. Honor and I also spoke about when competition is important and when it isn't, along with other topics including his dislike for labels, his rebellious nature, and his desire to create meaningful impact. What struck me most was in how Andre tells the story of his lowest moment in the journey, about two years into the project, when a young kid gave him the kind of honest feedback that inspired him to redesign his project from scratch. Let's dive right into today's conversation with Andre Dukic. Hey, Andre, thanks so much for being here today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I think firstly, like I, I'm excited because you are an incredibly unique guest, right? Um, very kind of different to everyone else that kind of I've had in the podcast thus far. So to kick things off, I would love for you to kind of just introduce yourself. And I'm really curious about any labels that you use for yourself in kind of that introduction or description of like who you are, or what you do today. Well, I'm... Uh... <laughs> I'm a young industrial designer. My name is Andre. I come from Croatia originally. I would describe myself mostly as a maker and I would say first principle thinker or aspiring to become a first principle thinker, trying to really get at the essence of problem solving, like uh, reframing, always rethinking the brief, rethinking the question, rethinking, rethinking the problem kind of. Yeah, so that's interesting to me, especially mentioning first principles there, right? And I'm wondering, like, in using labels, do you think labels, when you describe yourself, your your personality, or at least the work you do, do you think labels almost is a bit of a forcing function as well to kind of, you know, whether it forces you or someone else to go back to some kind of, you know, whether it's a first principle, but it's some kind of principle, right? Because the label defines something. Like, I'm wondering how you feel about kind of those labels that you choose to use. Mm -hmm. Well... I think I know where you're coming from, and I agree. I don't like to use labels at all, but it, you're kind of forced to, you know, in, in the for brevity's sake, to just to communicate easier. But I, I like maker because it's such a wide-ranging label. It could really include anything from a lot of different disciplines. So I like that one, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. And you know what is interesting there is um, what resonates and what I remember now is in the very first episode of the podcast, I interviewed um, novelist Elliot Pepper and Elliot does loads of things. And he essentially described this notion because I asked him why just kind of you know label himself as novelist. And he said what is helpful in using a label is mostly for the other person, right? It creates mm -hmm. that some kind of context for another person, where, whereas at least for him, kind of it means less for him, that label, right? Because he understands you know, a bigger part of kind of, you know, who he is, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah, anyway, that wasn't a trick question to kind of force you into <laughs> it. I, I just kind of your thoughts, we would uh, start off there with yeah. labels. So, I always have to put in industrial designer just to get a bit of credibility there. You know, I have a master's degree in something, so. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, well, so totally right. So, I mean, I guess like that would be my my next question, right? So, take me kind of you know, through kind of your you know, let's say kind of teenage years, kind of growing up, and then eventually deciding to kind of you know, study industrial design and a master's degree. Like, perhaps like tell us like what was that initial kind of you know, passion or interest that inspired you to actually go study industrial design? So I was always a very creative kid, and not to brag, but I, I kind of had an easy life. And everything kind of, you know, came very easy to me. So I didn't have to try hard. And my identity basically became somebody with a lot of potential who wanted to be very overrated, basically, which is a funny thing to say. But I always wanted people to think that I'm even smarter than I am and to put in like less effort than is even like required to get a good grade or something like that in school. But outside of that, I was just a creative kid who wanted to, you know, draw, write, do a lot of creative stuff. But I, I was always missing that kind of purpose in the art, you know? So that's kind of why I went to, went into the industrial design. Also, because my brother went to graphic design, I kind of followed him there. I was very on a very passive trajectory through most of my life until my like mid twenties, basically five years ago. So it was just a very passive lifestyle. I had a very happy life, but uh, very content, very comfortable, uh, not actually like looking to achieve anything great. I was looking to achieve anything great, but I was just stuck in that place of infinite possibility and no no uh, constraints, basically, no no direction in life. Gotcha. And do you think, like, you know, when I hear that kind of your know, infinite uh, possibility, right, like that's probably like the first thing, and you mentioned kind of it there partly, right, is the idea that comes to mind is art is always this infinite possibility inherently, right? Art, like we associate things like blank canvases, right? You know, mm -hmm. with that, you start with the blank canvas, you can literally do some, you know, anything, you know, with that. So I'm wondering, like, what compelled you to kind of get out of that kind of, you know, state? What, what compelled you to take, go from that position of having infinite possibility to deciding what to do next? Mm -hmm. Well, it's a combination of a few factors. I received like a very serious injury to my ankle and my wrist, which kind of took away sports from me. I, I was very into uh, doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, like uh, wrestling MMA and uh, football. And through this combination, I kind of lost a lot of my uh, recreational time, which kind of freed up my mind a lot. And it took me out of the comfort zone I was stuck in. And it kind of pushed onto me the idea that, you know, I'm very impermanent. The parts of me now are dead. I can't do sports anymore. So I kind of had to learn to accept that I'm dying, which is something that I, I think I pushed away from my young life. And also I started listening to Jordan Peterson and he kind of framed it very nicely where he said, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him, the, the Canadian psychologist. So I know of him, not familiar with his work. Mm -hmm. so, so he basically made this framing using like uh, Peter Pan uh, saying that Captain Hook I mean, I, I don't want to go into that. Let me let me start again. Sorry. No, please uh, do, please do. I I actually think this sounds fascinating. Interesting. Go for it. Okay, okay. So Peterson talks about Peter Pan, and he frames it as this archetype that's uh, that's being told through the story. And Captain Hook is uh, Peter Pan is stuck in his childlike uh, mind where he he doesn't want to grow up. He wants to keep all these magical possibilities, right? He could be anything, but he's not anything. He's not committing to any path in life. And Captain Hook, on the other hand. He's like lost his arm, lost his leg through this crocodile. And the crocodile always follows him around with a clock that's sticking in his, in his stomach. And the symbolism there is that the crocodile and the clock are time. And time has already got a piece of the character, right? And at the end, he's going to eat the whole thing. So even if you don't make a decision, the decision is being made for you. The clock is ticking. So you better just do, try to do something, you know, while you have some time. 
Gotcha. So I'm totally telling my kids that uh, bedtime story tonight, or like the first time that they're ever lazy again, I'm telling them about, you know, the ticking clock and the crocodile's stomach. So going back then, you have this injury, you suddenly kind of, you, you lose parts of kind of your life, right? And, and kind of parts of your future as well, at least in terms of expectations. Like, what is that kind of next step? Like, as you realize, you mentioned kind of you're freeing up your mind and almost kind of, you know, I would kind of uh, you know, suggest kind of you had to rethink what that kind of future for you looks like. What's the next thing? What's the first thing you, you, you do after that realization? So one other thing that I failed to mention was that I was doing industrial design. So I was designing in Croatia. We don't have a lot of industry, so it's mostly furniture. So it's chairs, it's desks, it's, it's furniture. So furniture is not very meaningful to design especially in the modern world where there's so much furniture. If it was like 50 years ago, maybe there was something to do. But I always wanted to do something meaningful and I couldn't find it. But through this injury, I started researching like uh, disabilities, amputations, because at one point I was actually planning on <laughs> amputating my leg because the way this injury works, you get a surgery, then you get another one, then you get another one, and then you're stuck with like a fused ankle where they put screws in your ankle so it doesn't move because it's too painful. And then some people at the end decide to amputate their ankle as well. So I, I just wanted to skip that whole track because I was basically because I was in denial and I wanted to kind of get back into my life. I wanted to, to claw my way back into sports. And then I realized, okay, amputation is not all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> and uh, it got me researching this topic. I decided I was going to design myself a prosthetic foot. And then I started researching further and I realized there was like a huge gap in what people think prosthetic hands can do and what they actually can do. So I just decided, okay, let me put myself into this field. Let me see what I can do here. Oh, wow. and um, you know what resonates there is a friend, Garrett Diamond, and a couple of years ago, he had a horrific injury to, to his ankle and foot as well. And like I, I know, as you described there, he went through multiple surgeries and it didn't fix the problem. And he eventually decided, and um, we'll link this up in the show notes for, for anyone you know keen on just Garrett's journey there as a kind of side note. But he eventually decided that amputation, you know, was the best choice kind of forward. And I know that that like, I can just imagine like if you have even if you have like a half off working limb, like mm -hmm. considering amputation, like that is a hard decision, right? Like it's not something like that probably gets you in that realm of if you were to improve something here, that is meaningful, right? Yeah, definitely. Cool. So going from foot to hand, is that how you kind of then got into this whole idea of maker hand, which is what you're working on now? Uh, yeah. So I was lying in bed one day having like a bad cartilage day is what I call them. When I just have a lot of inflammation in my body, that means I can't really walk around that day. And since I had also broken my uh, wrist in football, I also have traumatic arthritis in my wrist and then my ankle as well. So I was laying in bed. I was pretty feeling pretty sad about myself. I was going to draw in bed that day to make myself feel better, but my hand was hurting so much I couldn't hold the pen. And I just started crying. I think I called my brother, you know, started complaining. And at that point, I just decided, okay, I was going to amputate my leg and I was going to build myself a prosthetic leg. But... Now that I don't even feel like I have a hand that's functioning, I just realized how tragic it would be if you wanted to build something and you didn't have hands. And that's kind of where I started thinking about prosthetic hands more. I want to say I can like imagine like being in that position, right? And I'm wondering like before, and I want kind of you to to tell everyone exactly what maker hand is, but before we kind of you know, get into that, I like I almost want to cast us forward kind of slightly. I mean, it sounds like your body even to this day has some limitations at least some things that kind of unique considerations that you need to kind of circumvent right 
and I'm just wondering kind of, you know, how, how that feels, right, firstly, and just whether there are specific kind of, you know, rituals, disciplines, routines that you've had to kind of put into place in your life to allow you to kind of be the best version of you, you to continue doing your work, etc. So, yeah, I basically had to force myself to not ever be tempted into playing sports. And it sometimes also happens. Like the other day I went to my friend, he had like a yoga mat down. We started wrestling and then the next day everything was hurting. And so it's more, more of a discipline to say no to sports. I also can't uh, extend my leg fully, like the foot. So I have to use my hands when I'm trying to extend my leg downwards. If you were to jump off, I can't do that because my ankle would lock up and hurt a lot. So I also had to learn how to sleep in a position where my ankle doesn't uh, extend in, the, in sleep because that would, in the first few months, that would wake me up screaming. And uh, I changed my diet a lot to, to, to take out all the sugar because sugar causes inflammation. I stopped drinking, I only drink like a few times a year. So those are kind of uh, the adjustments I made to my life. But honestly, outside of that, I just never notice it. I never allow myself to think about it. I just push it under the rug and just move forward. I'm just very grateful for every day that it doesn't hurt. It just feels like, oh, I get one more great day. You know, I can just use to my fullest potential. Yeah. That's awesome, you know, living, you know, having that kind of your future focus. And I think, you know, that gratitude, which uh, what resonates there for me, Andre, is I know that the Stoics also had that philosophy, whereas kind of, you know, you acknowledge the kind of the, the worst case scenario or the bad things and then literally just focus on kind of your gratitude every single day over and over again. Mm -hmm. So I know that one of the things that um, you know, definitely kind of inspires you, creates a lot of energy in your life and kind of you know, gives you that kind of you know, the meaning that you spoke about before is Maker Hand. And we've mentioned it a couple of times. Give us your best elevator pitch for Maker Hand. And I like, go all out, not because anyone necessarily on you know, <laughs> listening here is being sold to, but just because you know, you know, Maker Hand, at least from kind of a neutral kind of position where I'm at, looks like an absolutely fascinating kind of project. So tell us all about it. Mm -hmm. So I started this project at my university as my master's thesis inspired by the story that I just told you. I saw that there was a huge potential in the field of mechanical prosthetics because robotic prosthetics have uh, been all the rage for the last 60 years. But in this competition that I'm competing in called Cybertron in 2016, a mechanical hook, which is a 100-year-old design, won out functionally against robotic hands that cost, you know, 100k euro. So I saw enormous potential to develop that technology further because it's still more functional than robotic hands, which are the norm today. And there was, has been basically no development in the last hundred years on this. So I just decided, let me personally do all of this development. You know, it's a wide open lane for me. And let me use uh, 3D printers as this amazing new technology of additive manufacturing that's distributed all around the world to make this maybe like a completely distributed uh, healthcare product that anybody can make for a friend of theirs if they're a maker, you know. And I also decided to make it super cheap, which kind of worked for the budget that I was working with because I, I took four years out of my life to develop this. So that was just, I needed to save any every penny I could. So that's why the hand turned out to be so cheap as well, 30 bucks for parts. Wow. So just again, like, I, I think let's not bury the lead there, right? So 30 bucks to essentially create, a, are you saying 30 bucks to create a hand, like from scratch to where, you know, someone can actually use it? If you have a 3D printer, that's a, if you're a maker with a 3D printer, yes, 30 bucks for parts. And you can actually build multiple hands with those parts, because I've actually been using the same kit, not kit, but the group of parts that you need. I bought it like a year ago. I'm still using the same parts, building like prototypes every day. So it's actually cheaper than that if you consider scaling the, the project. 
Gotcha. And the, the reason I asked for the clarification, right, is comparing that to what you mentioned, 100,000 know, euros for robotic hand. I mean, that's a kind of you know, a massive difference, right? So if we're starting thinking about kind of impact and meaningful impact around the world in terms of having a cost efficient solution to gather kind of more people, I'm, I, like, I'm assuming that was always part of your thinking here as well, right? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, because it's ridiculous that they're so overpriced. Let's say if you live in a country with privatized healthcare, you cannot afford them. Like only one to five percent of the people will be able to afford them. And then you also have this weird uh, marriage of social healthcare and private companies in Europe, where our government healthcare will pay for your robotic prosthetic, but that just leads to bad incentives where you can like inflate the prices because it's kind of a mon monopoly or a duopoly on the market with Autobock, the, the biggest company producing all the hands. So they, they charge like ridiculous prices for hands that could be, even their hands could be made a lot cheaper, but they're not. Then you also have prosthetists who have incentives to sell you because they're the first point of contact, right? With the customer, the amputee, and they tell them you have to get myoelectric hands. Those are the best. Those are the robotic hands. They do more. And because they get to keep more of the commission for the myoelectric. So it's, it's a lot of bad incentives all around. So yeah. The impact was my always my biggest kind of motivation to, to maximize impact. Gotcha. So, I mean, that's, that's and what I hear kind of you know, between the lines there on and correct me if I'm wrong, right, is I, I hear somewhat of a bit of a, you know, rebellion almost, right? Kind of, you know, standing up to kind of, you know, and for listeners, air quotes, the man, right? But just standing up against bureaucracy or red tape there and, and trying to change a broader kind of e ecosystem or societal kind of you know, structure. What I'm curious about is, as I said, I use the word rebellion. I'm wondering beyond the kind of impact, like what else does that say about you as Andre? Like, you know, where does that perhaps link back to kind of taking back first principles, like underlying kind of values about who you are, things that are important to you? Mm -hmm. I was always a very kind of rebellious kid and I always hated like authority. And I always wanted to see if I can work around, you know, any kind of, so I would get these assignments in school and I would always want to, See if I could not learn the things that I need to learn, but kind of solve the problem anyway. So just always find alternative solutions to everything. That's probably kind of a characteristic of mine that, that links into this because re it's really a discussion. I think there's a lot of stuff that's really broken in the world, like a lot of institutions, a lot of systems all around. So I would love to, through this project, kind of help to fix some of that stuff. Gotcha. So for anyone that um, kind of wants to you know, pour fuel on their own kind of your flames and their own rebellion here, like I'm wondering which kind of your kind of resources or mentors, like people you looked up to, to inspire you in your philosophies, whatever it is, right? Like, is there anything that comes to mind? I know you mentioned Jordan Peterson earlier mm -hmm. with the ticking clock and you know, crocodile stomach, but are there anything else that comes to mind that really kind of inspired you down this path that you are currently on? Well, I actually found Peter Thiel later after I started doing this project, but he, he kind of helped me rationalize because I was always a very competitive guy. I always wanted to be first in class, you know, in my design studies. So I, I enrolled into this uh, very kind of nice uh, university in Delft in the uh, Netherlands. And I felt I needed to compete with these people. I needed to be number one there. But then I dropped out. I was basically thought of as the loser in the generation who, who went to do this project for himself. And the biggest sacrifice during this whole project for me was basically just accepting that everybody in my life thinks I'm a bum who's not doing anything, you know, because I'm not really showing what I'm doing. I'm working on this project for four years. I'm not making as money like other people are making. And just hearing Peter Thiel say competition is for losers, like just go do the one thing that you feel driven to do 
nobody else is doing that. So it's a wide open lane. So that's kind of how it worked out for me in the end. That really, there was really no competition. Nobody's trying to do what I'm trying to do. It's a very uh, comforting idea, I guess, to feel like you're not a loser for withdrawing from a competition. You don't need to win every competition, you know? Yeah, because to some extent, you're only playing your own competition and you're only competing against yourself, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so Andre, you, you've been working on this for four years. I'm, I'm wondering if you had to kind of think back on that kind of journey. What was the hardest kind of your know, point or the lowest moment in in that journey? Like, where were you at? Like, what was the context, and how did you overcome that mm -hmm. point? I had a friend that I was building these for, and he was supposed to be competing in this competition for me, but we kind of parted ways at some point. And I found I had a few issues that I needed to solve, which is how the prosthesis would work on on kids who are growing, so how would it grow with them? Uh, how would it work on a person with two amputations at the same time? And also how it would work on a different level of amputation, which is like where the fingers are missing, but you still have the wrist. And I went to this hospital in uh, Zagreb that uh, is uh, specialized in amputations. And there I, I talked to doctors and they recommended, they actually connected me with this family that, uh, where I met this boy called Dominic, who I built hands for. And the first time I built hands for him, one hand, I built it on the old model, just trying to test it out. And when I saw, I, I, I kind of took two days to hang out with him to see how he's using the hand. And I was so disappointed. I had spent like two years at that point working on the project. And I was so disappointed because this was the first time I got honest, like child feedback because children don't lie. You know, they just tell you straight up. So he told me he would never take the prosthetic to school because it looks like a claw. He, he tried to pick up a tennis a table tennis racket and he couldn't like play table tennis with it he tried to the pour like from a pitcher and the, the hand was not designed in an anthropomorphic way so it didn't actually work that well with handles so when the family kind of walked out of my house i just started crying and it took like 30 minutes to get back to normal because i just felt oh my god this is just a disaster like the hand doesn't work and it was summer and I just took like a month off of summer. I just said to my friends, you know, I'll see you. I'll see you maybe next summer. And I buried myself in my room and I redesigned the whole hand basically from scratch. And that design was like five times better than the old design, which I was already like hoping to win the Cybertron with, you know. So just that, that, that moment where it completely broke me, but I never thought about quitting. It was just, I always have that Elon Musk quote in my head where he just says, you know, I, it never comes to his mind, you know, I, I'll never give up. So that, that was just what it was spinning in my mind. But I'm also a very big fan of like stoic philosophy. I have a few tattoos on me that just are stoic quotes. I've also like memorized Invictus and a few other like very stoic uh, philosophy poems just to keep myself going. So I've told a few guests this, and when I invite guests and I have these conversations, I'm mostly biased and I'm mostly doing this for myself. And I, and I hope there's other listeners out there that find this interesting. Stoic philosophy is something that has had a huge impact on my life in the last you know, three, four years and changed many of my habits. So like just slights kind of, you know, it's almost you know, a segue before we get back into kind of maker hand. I would love to know favorite Stoic philosopher and just favorite quote, like offhand. Well, I have this quote tattooed on me. It's Epictetus, the Greek slave uh, philosopher. He said, uh, the world steps aside for the man who knows where he's going. That's kind of one of my favorites. I like the Invictus poem, like I said, my favorite philosopher, I mean, Marcus Aurelius, his, his kind of uh, teachings are maybe like a best conglomeration of the whole philosophy. 
Yeah, totally. And, and Marcus Aurelius, obviously, being all, you know, kind of, I think, probably also you know, along with Seneca, probably you know, one of the kind of almost mainstream philosophers to get into, right? Mm-hmm. Um, often referenced. So, you know, for I agree there. I think for any kind of listener that wants to get into kind of your Stoic philosophy, that's probably where I would start to. Mm-hmm. So, Andre, like, I'd love to get back into MakerHand and specifically kind of, you know, why you've chosen to make MakerHand open source, uh, which will be open source soon, right? So, firstly, that kind of why, but I also love for you just to kind of, in your own words, explain to listeners, like, what does it actually mean to open source a product or a project? So, basically, the MakerHand project has been thought of and conceived from the beginning as a way to democratize the science that's been done in the last hundred years around prosthetics and kind of bring it to everybody that needs it all, all around the world, third world countries, the U.S. as well, because they have horrible privatized healthcare that most people can't afford. And uh, it was always my issue with patents and paywalls through university databases that I couldn't always get to the knowledge. And that always frustrated me. And I also heard a lot about patent thinking from uh, Elon Musk, where he just kind of describes that, that patents are a lottery ticket to a lawsuit. Like, what is actually the point? And then also the way that patents work these days with you need like a massive lawyer team of lawyers that will actually enforce the patents and patents don't really actually work for small inventors or designers. They mostly work for huge companies who can actually enforce the patent. So I always felt, okay, I'm going to open this completely up for everybody. But the kind of bigger issue there is how to make it as widely available as possible. So that's why I always wanted to go in that direction where I invite everybody to contribute and kind of build a community around the project that will distribute it all around the world. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And you know, many of the listeners would know that, you know, kind of my, my previous business was kind of as co-founder and with Eames and WooCommerce. And you know, WooCommerce is the biggest open source e-commerce platform, you know, to this day and probably rivals Shopify, like which is very well known in terms of merchant volume. And one of the key things that you know, contributing factors in WooCommerce's growth throughout the years was the fact that it was open source and we could essentially get some of the best minds all around the world to contribute kind of you know, from kind of little bits to significant bits um, to help move the project forward so that really resonates on me and i'm wondering like the thing before we get into the community here is like how do you think about like once you open source this thing right Mm -hmm. and you invite essentially kind of you invite others into kind of your innermost ideas and thoughts right because that's Mm -hmm. kind of what you're doing like how do you think about things like ownership and control because i think Mm -hmm. those are probably the you know the, the reasons and beyond kind of ownership more on a personal you know, level and not necessarily in a commercial level, because I think you addressed that with that notion of kind of you know, a patent that's only kind of as valuable as the enforcement that you do afterwards, right? So, but really kind of how do you think about that kind of ownership and, and control as you are now open sourcing this creation you've worked on for four years? Mm-hmm. So that's actually like a major concern that I'm tackling right now. So I'm having a lot of conversations every day almost about how to, how to best do this. The biggest issue with a project like this is that it, it's not as insignificant or as it has major impact on the people who use it. So it's, there's a major issue with quality control and benchmarking how every hand works, because if people make this shoddily, if they don't put the effort in, it could come out even like causing injury to people. So there's a whole, not even like legal liability, there's like a personal liability that I would feel responsible for this if that happened. So there's a big issue about how to vet people who are going to be building this. It's all going to be free and freely available, but it, it needs to be a certain type of person that will be doing this work. And there's also the other side that you were, you were mentioning, like ownership and control. I do want to have kind of a keep an eye on the project. And I'm thinking of building almost like a distributed research lab all around the world with people who want to contribute. 
but it's going to be a very exclusive thing in the sense that it's going to be like maximum maybe 30 people who who want to get involved in this and we can just collaborate as like a completely distributed research lab like i said yeah to, to, to do the r d to, to come up with further project and then this can be expanded maybe in the future but yeah for now a small exclusive community of people who who work on r d and then a wider community of people who are dedicated enough to be vetted to make these for people gotcha and like that makes sense right because just having something open or accessible does not necessarily mean that there isn't responsibility or accountability right that like just having the opportunity to do something doesn't mean i can just do anything there are still consequences and i still need to kind of you know, be accountable for those and i think as the creator of a project in the community like that is probably your role there which is that kind of curation that kind of you're know, making sure that everyone that is involved is accountable yeah, I was actually thinking of how to best construct this community. And what I want to actually use is there's this, like you, you mentioned in the beginning, open source is thought of as this kind of like almost a you know communist idea where everything is free and available. But the issue in those kind of systems is that if volunteers are going to be participating in the product, they're not going to be very motivated. And the first thing they're going to drop from their life before they drop, you know, recreational football or anything is going to be volunteering for my project. So, so not my project, the project, it's going to be everybody's project. The idea is to create almost like a competition on this website, almost like the way that Stack Overflow works, where people just volunteer their time and they're very interested in keeping their, you know, uh, reputation high. They get points for good answers. That's a way to, to kind of incentivize people to participate in a community. And you always want to go for that Pareto distribution, right? Where you get, you know, the most uh, productive people and you want to reward them somehow. So I was also thinking of ways to, through sponsorships or extra funds from the, you know, Patreon or nonprofit in the future, to be distributed evenly based on a scoring system where people can kind of rank each other on how they're working, right? Yeah. And I think that's like, you touch on many things there, Henri, which that I think is already true. And we see that in other open source communities. Again, like the greater WordPress kind of ecosystem is the one I'm most familiar with. But what you're describing there is exactly what happens there, which is people ultimately do things for community, for connection, right? For feeling relevant. Like all of those, if you work through Maslow's hierarchy, like those are the reasons why people are often willing to trade their kind of their time, their energy, their skills, their ideas to something without necessarily getting monetary remuneration as they're kind of the primary reward that they get from that, right? And oftentimes, and I think this is what happens with open source projects is that there's an open source leg to it, and then there's a kind of spin-off where there's a secondary kind of commercial leg, right? So for someone contrib contributing freely to an open source project, I know within WordPress, they would do that. It would create relevance and familiarity within their ecos the ecosystem. And they would use that to build their reputation, their brand, their connections to ultimately do consulting or whatever it is on the other side of that. So like, I think many people, um, you know, again, like they look at open source and think that, you know, kind of there's no consideration of commercial value involved, right? And like, and why would people ever do these things for free? But in a kind of efficient system, that is definitely not the case. And it seems like what you're thinking through here should ensure that you create that community around kind of maker hand as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope so. 
Yeah, I don't have much to add to that. <laughs> so, I know you mentioned the competition that you are competing in, kind of at the moment, right? So, like, firstly, kind of tell us a little bit about the competition. Um, you know what it is, why you're doing it, but then I also kind of I, I love for you to just contrast this idea of building a community with competition because I think you know many people would you know kind of always put those two things at odds where community is about more than one people more than just yourself you've mentioned that this is not your project this is the project right it's everyone's projects versus competition where it generally you know suggests that there is a winner and a loser so the competition was started by ETH Zurich a very famous school from Switzerland uh, from Switzerland yeah where uh, Albert Einstein actually worked on his theory of relativity. I always think that's a very good reference to have, you know, for the school. But they came up with this idea to kind of push the research and development in prosthetics because they also, I think, kind of noticed there was an issue there with functionality. And they basically designed this competition as the ultimate test of functionality for prosthetic hands. And they, through their reputation, managed to get like the biggest prosthetic companies the most uh, prestigious uh, research teams from colleges like Sorbonne, Technical University of Munich, like Chalmers, that has amazing uh, progress and development done on prosthetics. Also, uh, London College Imperial, I don't know if I mentioned that. And um, so, yeah, they, they invited a lot of very reputable teams to compete to design hands for the competition. And in 2016, they held the first one and they conceived it as almost like an Olympic style competition where they would have it every four years. But it was almost more like Formula One in the sense that, yes, the people there were competing, the MPTs, but it was also a competition to see the technology development, right? And I think that was exactly what was missing in prosthetics to kind of have a perfect demonstration of where the field is at, like how each hand functions in a, a very rigorous environment. And like I mentioned before, the hand that won was actually the cheapest hand, completely mechanical, lowest technology level of advancement, right? basically 100-year-old technology that one. That was like a major turning point in many people's thinking about prosthetics. And it sounds like, I think, you know, kind of you were just bringing back that into that kind of community idea. It sounds like those two things can live side by side, right? Where like that competition is that forcing function because it probably creates that ambition and desire to win. I Like I, I don't compete to purposefully lose, right? Mm -hmm. I don't like necessarily need to win, but I don't go out on any playing field to, to just lose. And it sounds like that competition kind of infuses that the project with a different kind of energy. Mm -hmm. I think it's really that, that thing that without it, it the project really wouldn't like survive because you really need a way for people to prove themselves. I think it's like an innate, like you mentioned, like in Maslow hierarchy of needs, status is one of the highest ones. And that's for a reason, like people always want to prove themselves. The competition is so deep inside of us. And I think there's a lot of like communism uh, ideologies that kind of don't consider this very deep nature that like uh, how deep inside of us this hierarchy is, you know, instantiated inside of us. So Andre, I, I, I'd love to bring kind of, you know, I always like kind of bringing these things, you know, back to home, right? In this case, home is, is you, right? So I'd love to meet kind of know, you know, in your own words, like what does this competition actually mean, you know, for you in terms of what is next for Make Rand? Mm -hmm. So the competition has always kind of served as an overarching kind of the finish line. The, I always had this period of four years where I was inspired basically by the first competition and then I wanted to kind of win the, the second one in four years. So I think it's a perfect way for them, like it's a demonstration, right? Which hand is the best? And I always thought the only way for me to kind of gain actual credibility in this world, because there's so many 
people who will never understand, you know, you need to be an amputee or prosthetist to see a hand picking up a hammer to understand that that's even like a revolutionary thing, you know? So I just felt that it was a perfect platform for me to kind of publish my project, to popularize it and kind of show the qualities of the project. Yeah, that's why I never gave up on the idea of competing and was very happy to be accepted like a year ago. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that kind of you know being recognized for one's work, like again, like that's probably something that you know, that most, if not all, people kind of you know can can resonate with here. I'm wondering. You mentioned something earlier, which is which was the project will never be done, and yet you describe this competition as the finish line, at least. Like, how do mm -hmm. you reconcile that kind of at least kind of um, you know what, what looks like to be a bit of a contradiction? Mm -hmm. So my actual goal was to spend these four years to make this product and then just release it into the wild because I had this naive idea of how open source will just accept it, take it, and then make it a you know worldwide phenomenon. And I'm kind of becoming a bit of disillusioned right where as I'm reaching this goal. But I think that's very important to kind of keep yourself deluded in some point that you will end up you know done with something and maybe you never will be done with it. But just to keep you going, you need to kind of lie to yourself to think, okay, I'll just make this project. I'll, I'll have clean karma till the rest of my life, and I'll just, you know, make money for myself. But I don't think it's going to work out that way. <laughs> yeah. So I think then, kind of, you know, on the, on that kind of you know, note and kind of ending the conversation, you know, Andre, I'm wondering. It sounds like you are within this kind of you know transitionary period, right? And like, I wonder, kind of, in this moment at least. Like before you know how the next kind of a couple of weeks and months are going to play out, like what do you have in mind for what is next for you, right? And, mm -hmm. and crucially, kind of, I like would love to hear you explain what that looks like in terms of the longer term. Like, what is like when you think about legacy, like how do you want to be known, you know, ultimately, and how do you kind of you know, bring that back to towards the things that you plan to do next from here? I don't think of legacy at all. That's just very, I just never think about that. So, the near future, I was thinking of this at the ending of this project, and then I have to start from scratch, which I would enjoy doing because I love starting from scratch. It feels, you know, very exciting, very scary. But in conversations with a very good friend of mine, I kind of realized that this is a, a major leverage point that I can use to, to propel into something bigger, which I'm thinking this could be this like community that, that I gather around the project with like a lot of competent people who can do amazing things on their own. And then just combining that in, like a, like I said, a research lab that could produce multiple products such as the maker hand, but in different fields, maybe tackle blindness or other disabilities and just have a distributed network that can produce and, and distribute these products as well as a community that can work on the R&D side of the thing. So that's kind of my, uh, my vision for the project in the future. Yeah, and I mean, you know, from my perspective, that sounds like you know the, the kind of you know, big hairy goal, whatever it is. BHAG, I think, is what is often used in kind of business, but sounds like a fascinating kind of you know vision and mission to pursue. Andre, this has been a fascinating conversation. If anyone wants to kind of follow along, you know, both in terms of the you know Maker Hand project, but also as you execute on this kind of these next you know, stages of your journey and kind of work your way towards that mission, like what is the best place for kind of you know, where, where at least is the mm -hmm. best place for people to follow along with your journey well thank you so much adi for hosting me and um, the best place to find me is probably youtube where i'll be posting further videos so it's uh, andre jukic maker hand on youtube you can just put that in the search and uh, if you want to support the project financially you can do it on patreon.com uh, makerhand and also if you want to join the community of r&d or the just producing side of things you can find us on reddit subreddit maker hand basically 
awesome stuff on there. We'll get all those uh, linked up in the show notes for, for everyone kind of interested in kind of following along or supporting your journey. They will be able to do so. Thank you so much again for your time and please do keep up the great work you're doing. Will do. Thank you so much, Eddie. That's it for me for today's episode. If anything in today's conversation really resonated with you, please do send me an email on ad at lifeprofitability.com. That's A-D-I-I at lifeprofitability.com. You can also leave a review on iTunes, which helps me to improve the show and perhaps also helps me to reach someone else that needs to hear this or might find this helpful. I'll be back here with another great guest next week. Cheers. Cheers.